Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, and it's good to be back. Today, I have the great honor of being here with Dr. Tracy Weiss. Uh, I actually met her when I went to Alaska last year. She is fan-frickin-tastic. Uh, <laughs> she has her doctorate in nursing science, uh, works as a nurse practitioner, heads up mental health clinics, uh, mental health, it's the Integrative Metal, Mental Health Clinic in Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, she's just really smart about gender and sexuality. And after working with her in Alaska, I figured I had to have her on the show. So welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm super happy to be here. This is fantastic. So you are the degree that I love, which is a nurse practitioner, because I avoid MDs for anybody who listens to the show regularly knows I have my issues with MD. (laughs) A lot of us do. It's all right. Some of them are really great, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. there, there is a very small handful. I can count two that I like. <laughs> and, But I love nurse practitioners. So let's talk about, just for, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners have NPs, but they don't know what that means. Sure. Yeah. So a nurse practitioner usually will have their uh, master's uh, or now doctorate degree in nursing. Um, They would have practiced as a registered nurse for some amount of time. And when you go to nurse practitioner school, you kind of decide on on a specialty. So I originally went to school as a family nurse practitioner, and then I went back to school um, because the first time, I guess, wasn't good enough (laughs) for a post-master's certification in mental health when I saw how important that was. And it depends on the state you live in. In the state of Alaska, uh, nurse practitioners have independent practice. So we practice without the need for a collaborative agreement with a physician, and we are able to prescribe controlled medication, non-controlled medication. That piece varies from state to state, whether or not the nurse practitioner can practice independently or not. But in Alaska, we were the first state to have fully independent practice. So yay us. Well, and I love nurse practitioners specifically because you don't think you're God when you get out of school. Yeah. 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 I I, think that's a nursing thing, right? Like breaking down those power dynamics, meeting patients where they're at. I really value nursing theory's approach to healthcare. You're right. It just is different. It it really is. And it's for, in my experience as a consumer is much more patient centered than medical doctors 
I think so. You know, can't generalize to everybody, but I think most nurse practitioners have that approach and um, it's, it's different medicine. Western medicine has a very power over kind of approach. And this is, this is it. This is what I think I know best kind of vibe. Um, but I think nurses are well primed to approach things a little bit differently. And I think, especially when we look at queer healthcare, uh, which is what I do mostly, you know, we're really looking at breaking down power dynamics and, and meeting people where they're at because so many people in the LGBTQ community have medical trauma, you know, for whatever reason. So. That's a great transition. You specialize in queer healthcare, which, thank God, we need more people like you in the world. (laughs) We do. Um, There's so many queers. (laughs) Yeah, as we expand that definition. So, yeah, I'm the clinical director at Identity Health Clinic, which is Alaska's only LGBTQ focused health clinic. We're a nonprofit in Anchorage, but we serve the whole state via telemedicine. And we are really here to serve the needs, the unique needs of the LGBTQ community. But in because of that, we also, you know, we have other folks that kind of come seek our services that might feel more comfortable at our clinic. So folks involved in, you know, non-monogamy or BDSM dynamic relationships, maybe transactional sex workers or other people that know, you know, they can come here to get their prep. They can answer all the questions. We're going to ask the right questions and we're going to do so, you know, not just with kindness, but with competency and, you know, an evidence-based trauma-informed approach. So let's talk about competency for providers when it comes to queer folks, because (laughs) that's a that's a topic. It's more than just I'm okay if you call yourself gay. Right. What is it actually to be competent, competent when you treat LGBTQ plus? Yeah, my favorite line when I train providers is uh, our patients deserve more than kindness. They deserve our competency. So I think historically, you know, probably prior to really just about a decade ago, you know, anybody can throw on their website, I'm an LGBTQ friendly provider. We put the pink triangle or the rainbow sticker, you know, in the window and boom, you know, because quote, I treat everybody the same, you know, that makes me somebody who is safe to see you. But we know that doesn't work with BIPOC, you know, uh, patients. We know that doesn't work with LGBTQ patients. There are unique evidence bases when you're working uh, with the LGBTQ community, in particular, the T part of that community, working with transgender individuals. It is a specialty field of medicine. And I always say, you know, you would never go to a brain surgeon who had not taken a continuing education credit in neurology. Uh, or brain science or surgery. So why as an LGBTQ person, uh, you know, would you accept a provider who had never taken a continuing education credit? And most of us, I graduated uh, with my nurse practitioner degree in uh, my first one in 2009 and my second in 2013. And uh, we didn't have any curriculum even then um, in my program that was a uh, you know, a base part of your curriculum as a healthcare provider. I think in the last 10 years, we've definitely seen gender and sexuality affirming healthcare become a part of that curriculum, but it might be an hour or two hours, or it's an option or it's an elective. And so when we put providers on our referral list, uh, we actually ask them for a copy of their CV and we require them to have at least two hours of continuing education credits a year um, in gender, sexually affirming healthcare, anything, anything involving that, because every healthcare provider should be able to demonstrate competency in the specialty areas that they 
serve. And we would never accept that in any other field of healthcare. Well, and like you point out, it's only been in the last decade or so that any of this is has come into the curriculum. When it comes to sexuality, and we talk a lot about that on the show, I have a lot of sex educators on the show. Generally, Western medical practitioners have almost no sexuality training. So as you're out there training providers, uh, what are some of the things you're learning of that that are really lacking in the knowledge base of your average provider? Yeah, good question. I think it it really depends on what that provider's exposure level has been. But you know, at the at the at the highest level of need, you know, we are still explaining differences between gender and sexuality. Um, we are still explaining what it means to you know be bisexual and be in a heterosexual presenting relationship and how that doesn't negate you know the other aspects of sexuality. We're still you know, educating people on words like pansexual. I th- I think we're also, you know, still really educating providers on BDSM dynamics and, you know, lifting pathology off of BDSM dynamics that, that those, when, when done correctly and when done in a healthy way, that those dynamics don't indicate um, any kind of pathology or proclivity towards you know, deviant, so to speak, sexual behaviors. Um, so I, you know, it, at the highest need there there's that i think in that realm you know we're still educating providers on prep and how we prevent hiv or that that's even possible you know now we're educating providers on doxypep so i think what has happened right is that through marginalization of of healthcare and groups of people that also means that those groups of people are marginalized out of healthcare research right so we see this for people of color um indigenous people uh, you know, folks who maybe don't speak English, maybe they're refugees or immigrants. Um, these people aren't treated well in the healthcare system. And so what that means is then that they're not researched in healthcare either. And so if I don't have an evidence base, you know, it's it's hard to to know what to do. And so I think there has been so such an exponential growth in in research and evidence base around sexuality that a lot of providers, it's just not their specialty. And so again, while they're well-meaning, they're still very naive about even those basics. You know, what does the B stand for in LGBTQ? What does pansexual mean? Um, how can somebody have, you know, more than one partner and that be ethical? Just kind of these basic tenants. Um, you know, and, and we see these things from the get-go, right? So when you're filling out intake paperwork at a at a healthcare office, they're asking you, are you married? Are you not married? Who's your spouse? You know, they're not asking, do you have any other partners? You know, do you live with other, who are your important people? Um, so I'm always encouraging providers to really expand their intake paperwork because I feel like that's the first step in building a relationship with your patient, that's the first thing they're going to interact with is your social media and then your intake paperwork. And if those things aren't inclusive for me, I'm going to question, you know, whether or not I even finish filling out that packet. And as a consumer of, of healthcare services, that's where I'm at. If you only have two gender boxes, then I know Bye. you're not a safe space. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a signal to me that you are not I always tell providers and trainings that you can be the best, most competent gendered sexuality healthcare provider, you know, I could be sitting at my desk and, and if I'm working for an organization or a clinic that doesn't have, you know, updated paperwork with things that humans need on there, that person may never get back to see me. So it doesn't really matter, 
you know, how well-trained I am if my front desk staff are misgendering or not using pronouns or asking for pronouns and my paperwork doesn't reflect that competency, um, then we're not doing our due diligence as providers. Because that's how people in this community have trauma with healthcare providers. So every little green dot, stealing from the sexual violence world here, every little green dot that you can make is a little bit of a repair, right? In that relationship that that patient has um, with the healthcare system. So what drove you into the specialty? Because when you're graduating, this is just, we're we're getting (laughs) the baby sprouts coming up here. So what made you think, yes, I want to make a career out of this? Yeah, yeah, good question. Well, um, prior to this work, uh, I was a um, I worked in forensics, so I was a sexual assault nurse examiner, and I worked in child abuse medicine, and I did that for six years. And in doing that work, I became really, really fascinated with you know the adverse childhood experiences study and complex trauma, not just like what we were seeing, you know, during these forensic interviews, collecting evidence off of kids, listening to these horrible stories. It wasn't just the trauma in those moments, I became really fascinated with how that trauma transmuted into DNA changes and chronic illness and people's capacity to have meaningful relationships. And I am a research nerd and I just dove in. Um, And so by the time, by the end of my forensics career, um, you know, I was really burnt out. I I should have left before I did. you know, I just, I wanted to find another field. I've always wanted to work with vulnerable populations, always kind of in the nonprofit person. Um, and I had come out uh, as a lesbian at the time. I identify as queer now, but um, I, at the time when I was 24, 25 or so, I came out as a lesbian. And so I started, I had really no working knowledge of the LGBTQ community. I was raised in the South, raised in a religious military home. Um, you know, just kind of gone through the motions of my life and and myself have a have a really significant trauma history. So as I was kind of, you know, coming out of that fog and coming into myself, came out, started, uh, I dive into everything. So of course, I dove into that community and wanted to be involved. And I was actually standing in my kitchen one day. And my friend who is a transgender man, we, he was over, we were having dinner, and he just started sobbing in my kitchen. And I was like, what is wrong? And he said, I can't find a provider to prescribe my testosterone. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I just, I can't find anyone. I was like, well, that's dumb. I can prescribe it for you. And so I literally just stayed up that night and kind of did a quick Google search and realized, oh, wow, like this is an area of healthcare that really needs a trauma-informed lens. And I Googled a lot in Alaska and I could not find really any clinics that were openly marketing or advertising that they did this kind of care. So I was like, fuck it, I'll start a clinic. Um, So I opened a practice called Full Spectrum Health in 2017 and we became the first clinic in Alaska doing this work. But it was very quickly after we opened that I realized a for-profit model Um, You know, two years in, as I was draining my retirement to cover payroll, I realized, you know, I'm never going to make a profit at a 65% Medicaid population. And and at the time, I was sitting on the board of this nonprofit. We were just a community center. And I kind of said to them, listen, I've got 600 patients. I'm about to close. Like, I can't financially support this. And I really think we need to turn this clinic into a nonprofit and identity is really well suited to do so. And that was right before COVID hit. So we actually opened in the height of the COVID pandemic. Um, but you know, we are now, uh, we, we achieved three quarters of a million dollars in grant funding last year. So we, when I asked for help, right, when I engaged community, <laughs> when I did those things, 
it all just has aligned and showed up. That's phenomenal. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on and break out there. So first you bring up trauma, which God love us. Our community is full of it. The queer community, the non-binary trans and stuff. And you bring up adverse childhood events, which a lot of people (laughs) will refer to ACEs, but outside of a certain population in the medical community, they're not very well understood. So for our listeners who may have heard the term or may have just had a crappy childhood as so many of us did, what are ACEs and why are they important? Yeah, great question. So ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences or Events. Um, The original research that was done on ACEs uh, started in the early 2000s out of the Kaiser Permanente system in California. And the researcher actually, his name was Vincent Felitti, and he actually started this study as an obesity study. But as as he began doing the intakes for the 15,000 or so people in this study, he realized that a lot of people suffering from chronic physical illness had a lot of trauma early in their childhood. And so we flash forward 20 years and that ACEs study has now become what's considered probably the most groundbreaking research in in public health over the last two decades. And, you know, we used to talk about trauma from the perspective of people going to war, people getting in a car accident, people being, you know, sexually assaulted, um, which of course, all those things are valid, but we had very few conversations around, well, what happens when a kid lives in poverty? You know, what happens when a kid has a parent that goes to prison? What happens when a kid is living in a house with a mom that has a a chronic mental illness? And so we have uh, currently... The, the typical ACEs screening is is 10 categories, but I, I add a couple more. Um, one that I add that's not on there is, you know, a, a NICU stay when you were born. You know, were you in the NICU with no skin? I, I was born in a NICU in Germany in 1984. You know, I didn't have skin-to-skin contact for weeks. How, how has that impacted my attachment, my sense of safety, right? And, and so what we know from the ACEs research is that the more bad things, so to speak, so physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, not having access to nutrition, proper housing, you know, mentally or or physically even chronically ill family members, et cetera, et cetera. We get a score, right? We get a point for each one of those things. And the higher your score, the more likely you are to have chronic physical illnesses later in life. So your ACE score is actually the number one determining factor of your physical health status later in life. And of course, there's other contributing factors. We can't talk about ACEs without talking about resiliency. So we know that, you know, there's, of course, object things that people can do to buffer against that stress. Um, But really, we are now talking about, hey, like, if you've had all these bad things happen in your childhood, that makes sense why you now have some maladaptive behaviors like not eating right or maybe not exercising. Or sometimes these traumatic events can actually turn your genes for chronic illness on, which is kind of a fascinating offshoot of ACEs. So it it really is about building awareness. I will tell you that I was halfway through my career as a child abuse professional before I was able to own and acknowledge that I had an ACE score of nine, because what people with nine out of 10, it's not the A plus that you want in life. Um, I think what people don't realize about their childhoods is what they know is normal is normal. And so if you don't know 
that there's a different way of being brought up than what happened in your home, it can take a really long time or sometimes never. Um, you know, how many of us have said, oh, I don't have a trauma history. And then we're sitting in our sixth month of therapy, you know, unloading the eighth trauma category that we have. And I have so many patients that have come to me that say, I don't have a trauma history. And I just smile and nod, um, you know, we'll get there. Um, but what we know is normal is normal. We all love our families. You know, nobody, not everybody is able to sort of classify their families as abusive in their head. But when we, even well-meaning parents, right, can can cause harm to their children. So it's really this new science of looking at what happens to the brain when it is developing under what I like to call a soup of chronic stress hormones. If you, you get in a car accident, you feel that rush of chemicals in your body. Well, imagine getting in a car accident every single day for the first 10 years of your life. You know, and that's basically the equivalent of what what happens when you live in a chronically stressed household. And so that just shifts the entire way, not only that your body works, but the way you attach, right, to the people in your life. And so we might not start seeing impacts from our trauma until we're getting into sexual relationships or intimate friendships, or we we can't maintain a work environment, um, you know, and it, they just, ACEs play out in so many different ways once we're, we're adults. Well, I like that you bring up that it's it's like this toxic soup that your brain is in because it literally can change the way brain functions, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is, um, sorry, go I'm ahead. a big nerd, and I love I love that part of it. Um, yeah. So, do you want to? I'm like, let's nerd out on the show. Oh, this totally. Is I can nerd out all day long on this stuff. Yeah, we. You know, it's every so it it takes. If you think about it, homeostasis, so the baseline for your body is a state of peace. It's a state of rest. If you are, and this even can start prenatally, right? If you are in the womb of a pregnant person who is experiencing violence or not enough food or stress, or they're having to work, you know, two jobs, um, you know, you your literal embryological development develops under corticosteroids, you know, other heightened hormones. And so the the brain and body aren't meant to stay in a stress response. So if you, if you, in your early life, you know, you've got lots of cumulative days where there's either abuse, neglect, or high stress. It actually takes every system in the body to have a stress response. So it requires your cardiovascular system, your respiratory system, your hormones, your, you know, your steroids that are getting, getting released because your body has to work harder to maintain that state. Now, let's say you have to maintain that state for weeks and then months and then years. What happens is your body actually shifts its homeostasis up to that elevated state. So if you're somebody who seems like, man, I can't ever get out of crisis, or the common one I hear is every time in my life, I feel like I'm settled, something big happens and I'm not feeling settled anymore, right? Sort of that self-sabotage because for some of us, chaos is actually our more comfortable state of being. It's where we feel more safe. And that's not a badge to wear on your sleeve. You know, that's a reason really to step back and say, wow, why do I like to exist in this state of chaos? Because it's not healthy. That's what causes that early death, chronic illness, heart disease, you know, gastric disease, all those kinds of things. And it's that works for kind of a good transition because right now, politically, the right is based on let's see how many people we can hurt in as many ways as we can with public policy. And they've really attra attacked trans and queer youth. Yeah. Um, 
and they they act like, well, this is just public policy to help the children, which is how they right. We look. No. Uh, so I know, right? <laughs> I and since so you're treating a queer population in Alaska, and some of them are youth. What is this type of messaging and chronic inundation, especially through social media, these attacks on trans and queer youth actually doing to our kids? Yeah, it's so impactful. So we we take from the ACEs research and that translated into the minority stress research. And so minority stress basically mirrors what we learned from the ACEs study. So the minority stress model tells us if you have an identity that is an other kind of identity. So maybe you're working with a cognitive or physical uh, you know, disability or impairment. Maybe you're a person of color. Maybe English is your second language. Maybe you're living in poverty. Maybe your gender or sexuality is diverse. Whatever your other kind of identity is, your minority identity, that just simply having that identity living in America or, or a place where those identities are not fully supported creates an anticipatory stress response. For instance, you know, for me as a, even though I'm genderqueer, you know, I present as cisgender, I'm white, you know, I'm middle-class, I'm, I'm safe enough to be visible in my role as a queer person professionally. I don't get worried about going to the grocery store. You know, I don't get worried about um, going on a date with somebody new, you know, um, but maybe a trans woman of color has to worry about getting assaulted, going to the bank or grocery store. Right? So this anticipatory anxiety around safety creates a minority stress. Um, there are really only three groups of people in our country. So I say owners of uteruses, you know, immigrants and transgender people and and gay people, when the when the legislation switches terms, our healthcare is up for debate. So I might be able to access my life-saving, by evidence-based, life-saving gender-affirming care today. But then when somebody else takes office in my municipality, my state, or my country tomorrow, you know, I'm scrolling Facebook to find out if I'm still legally able to access care. I'm still scrolling Facebook as a provider to find out, am I legally able to provide this care? We've received two medical refugee families this year at our clinic um, of pediatric patients from Florida and Texas who are now no longer able to access their life-saving care. We know transgender youth carry a disproportionate burden of suicide completion because the external messaging is you don't even deserve human rights. You don't even deserve health care. This is despite the fact that we see over 500 species of animals in our biome that have sex changing or gender changing roles or behaviors to meet their reproductive needs. This is despite the fact that indigenous cultures, many indigenous cultures, not all of them, um, have celebrated uh, gender. And that's just from, from my working knowledge of, of trainings that I've been in. Um, I'm not an indigenous person, but, you know, have celebrated gender diversity for as long as humans have documented their existence. Um, you know, this is despite the fact that chromosomal and DNA science tell us there is diversity in gender, despite the fact that we know there are intersex individuals. So it's like, unfortunately, legislation does not have to be evidence-based, but legislation guides my practice, which does have to be evidence-based. And so um, the real lived experience of this is that it creates a lot of undue stress burden, which is why we see, uh, you know, being transgender is not pathologic. Having gender dysphoria you know, can be, but what causes most of the mental illness and substance use and things like that in the, in the LGBTQ community is really more of this oppression, the isolation, the othering, um, you know, not, we don't have federal protections around gender identity. So am I going to get fired tomorrow? Am I going to be able to get this apartment? You know, all of these things, um, that most 
cisgendered straight people don't have to worry about. Cisgendered straight white people. (laughs) Well, and as somebody who's running a clinic and providing these services, what does that do to your stress level? Yeah, good question. Uh, This is a a good week to ask me that question. I have had two youths in the last two weeks attempt suicide by lethal means. Um, So that's rough. (laughs) You know, I don't think that it happens with with the amount of frequency to other providers. Um, We hold a lot of space for joy in this clinic. We also hold an immense amount of space for fear, uncertainty, hopelessness, um, desires to, to unlive, you know, all, all sorts of things that I just don't think other healthcare providers or other specialties, most of them don't have to have the capacity for. So of course, you know, again, being a trauma kid, I've always found myself in these high stress work environments. Now I know why. Um, so it, it really re- requires us as providers to be self-reflective, you know, to have agencies, supervisors, and organizations that have trauma-informed work environments. I can't offer trauma-informed care if I'm not offering a trauma-informed work environment. But yeah, I think any provider who is dealing with having to hold this much space for those things I mentioned, it it takes a toll on us too, just to observe, you know, again, I, I am an, a queer person, but I, I, get to exercise a lot of privilege in my life. Um, and so I don't, I don't have as much of that minority stress. I think that other people in my community do, but I do have that vicarious stress of, you know, of holding that space for people. But yeah, there's some really joyful days around here. You know, when we get those folks in on their 18th birthday to start their hormones, those are really joyous days. And then there's some really tough days. And I have to say, one of my great joys is, so I'm on TikTok, despite being way past the age, anybody should have to use that app, because <laughs> I do it for the podcast. But there's so many queer folks and queer youth who are documenting their transition. And it the I don't think it could be understated how much joy and literally life-saving aspect there is to somebody who can access that medication um, yeah and i want to yeah under- i think yeah yeah and i don't think a lot of people understand that there is a scientific etiology or cause for gender dysphoria so kind of like i said before being transgender is not pathologic um gender dysphoria has symptoms and can be classified as an illness and the more and more we're actually able to study gender dysphoria the more we're realizing okay yeah their brain scans are showing differences in people who are transgender versus cisgender um it does look like you know the same neurological deficit that contributes to sensory processing disorders eating disorders dissociation that same neurological process actually looks like it's contributing to gender dysphoria so when we when we use hormones when we're doing the medical aspect of gender affirming care, what we're doing is we're targeting that discongruence between the who the brain and spinal cord think I am and what my body is. And the hormone, you know, the brain and spinal cord are very responsive to hormone environments. So then I shift the hormone environment and my brain and spinal cord feel a little bit better. You know, it's not a magic fix, but my brain and spinal cord feel a little bit better about the body I'm in. I might then progress to choose to do other interventions, but watching a human align you know, their neurological system with their body and just the relax and the, honestly, the development that then gets to happen, right? There's a stall in development. Our last developmental stage as humans is to figure out who we are. And I can't figure out who I am if I'm stuck in this space of 
discongruence. And so, yeah, being able to observe that process for people is like the greatest joy of my career for sure. I do love it. The other thing you're dealing with up there is Alaska is the largest state in terms of geographic area. And you're not, you have places that are not easy to get to. Um, mm-hmm. And there are times of years they're very isolated. So, how does that change developing and providing healthcare in a state that has probably more challenges with just the geography and the weather than anywhere else in the US? Yeah, Alaska's always unique. You know, obviously the experience of the urban Alaskan queer is quite a bit different, you know, than the LGBTQ person living in St. Mary's or Ukiavik or, you know, Fairbanks even. Um, it comes down to the fact that we know that access to, you know, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs or healthcare providers will say social determinants of health. They're basically the same thing, but I am going to be more well, right, if I have access to community, um, positive environments, recreational spaces, nutrition, and the more rural we get in Alaska. Now, uh, we have areas of Alaska that you can only get to by boat or plane. And so, uh, of course, as you can imagine, the resources in those communities can be very small, very short list. You know, they're also very small, very low population. So I might be living in this this small area because that's where my family uh, is from. I might be there for work. And so regardless, maybe there's one health clinic at, you know, an area a few hundred miles away, or maybe even one in my town or village if I'm lucky, but maybe, you know, my family member works at the front desk and they don't know that I'm on prep, you know, and, and I don't really want them to know that I'm on prep. So Alaska always has those unique factors where, you know, we can do a research study in Anchorage, but that doesn't really help us generalize what the queer experience is like in these rural areas. So through our programming at Identity, we really try to break down as much of those barriers as we can. We do provide telemedicine to the entire state as long as we can continue to prescribe control testosterone as a controlled drug. So as long as we can continue to prescribe testosterone via telemedicine uh, by federal regulations, which are up for debate right now. Um, as long as we can continue to do that, we will. If we ever get to the point where we can't do that, you know, we'll we'll be creative. We'll do some traveling clinics. We'll do whatever we have to do. But telemedicine is is great if people have internet connection. You know, there still might be those folks that maybe don't, but we we try to to do that. Um, we you know have travel funds, scholarships for our youth events. So if a youth wants to come to youth camp, but you know, it's a $300 plane ticket to get to Anchorage, you know, we'll get their plane ticket covered. So we try in our programming to, again, buffer against that minority stress, because it's, it's not always safe to be out as a visibly queer person when you're living in a town of 200 people, you know, as it might be in Anchorage. And I think it's so important to talk about those groups, because I grew up on a farm in the smallest part of Idaho. Like everybody knew every, every everybody knew my great greats, and we're still mad at them seventy years after they died. And it is it's a very different experience. And I think when we look at the representation of queer folks, especially in the media, they're always in these large communities in large cities. So, how did you find queer community in Alaska? I mean, I know you're in Anchorage, but it's still not that big. It's not that big. 
Yeah. You know, I, um, I was a military brat when I grew up. And so I think when you have, when you're, when you're younger and you're forced to move every couple of years, I think networking becomes sort of an intrinsic skill. I, uh, used to identify as an extrovert. I, I think that was my trauma showing. I think I'm more introverted than I'd like to think. <laughs> um, but definitely when I was coming out, you know, I, I'm good at making friends. I, I feel like I'm a good good people person. You know, I had, I had come out after meeting somebody, you know, that I was uh, romantically interested in. And so at first I kind of, um, just sort of latched onto her community. You know, when, when that relationship ended, I really forged my own community, but, um, I found a big portion of my community through drag. Um, so I was a, I've been a drag king for, uh, over a decade now. And, um, you know, I was actually a theater major my first two years of college. I've always loved a mic, get me on a stage. Um, I've done a lot of emceeing or hosting at events. I do a lot of trainings for people, which I always say like my first two years as a theater major were really good prep for training people. So I think through drag, um, you know, which unfortunately sometimes is really rooted in the bar environment, but you know, that, that is where I originally found my community. And then I think as my professional, career developed, you know, more into the queer community. I was, you know, I've kind of diversified my, my queer community, um, you know, to, to, on the professional end, people who maybe aren't going to the bar, but honestly, drag was really how I grew my community quickly. How did somebody who's raised in the American South end up in Alaska? Were you just dumped the humidity? <laughs> so my parents were divorced. They have been since I was, uh, born. And when I was in eighth grade, again, I didn't, I don't think I really would have been able to say to myself, I'm in an unsafe household, but I had a therapist at the time. And cause I was being a problem kid. So of course I got put in therapy. And, um, at the time I really wanted to, to move out of my dad's house because of the experiences that were going on there. And, and my, my mom, uh, drove up to Alaska from Tennessee in the early Chattanooga, Tennessee in the early nineties, because she's an ultrasound tech and there was a shortage of allied health professionals in Alaska at that time. So she and two of her friends packed up a Subaru and they drove up to Anchorage. And so when I was in eighth grade, I chose to, you know, like divorced kids have to do. I, I chose to live with my mom. So I moved up to the Matanuska Valley, which is about an hour north of here. In eighth grade, I finished high school in Alaska. I left for a couple of years of college in Oregon, but I came, came right back to Alaska um, to finish nursing school. And uh, I get the privilege of traveling. So if you can leave Alaska a couple of times a year, you can be in Alaskan, I think. <laughs> um, but I don't think I ever could live anywhere else. I love it here. <laughs> I think the other thing I know from living in the lower 48 is most of us have a lot of stereotypes about Alaska. So does it ever get warm? <laughs> yeah, our summers get warm. It, it really depends on where in Alaska. You know, Alaska is a huge landmass. It's it's like comparing the weather in Idaho to Florida. You know, we stretch that far. So um, it really depends on where you live in Alaska. And, and much of Alaska is just not habitable. But at least for South Central Alaska, where, where Anchorage is, yeah, we have, I'd say, sometimes four seasons, but definitely like we call it winter breakup, which is when all the snow melts, and then summer, <laughs> um, and then a very short fall, very short fall season. Um, some people just say we have winter season and then construction because all of the road construction has to get done in, in those 60 days. But yeah, I mean, well, right now it's negative 10 outside and we've had 101 inches of snow this year, which is not typical for us here in Anchorage, but um, it does get warm-ish in the summertime. <laughs> 
yeah, no, it's it's bizarre to me because you know I've lived all over the lower forty-eight. How there's so many. It's like when I live in California, people don't understand that where I live in LA is a nine-hour drive. Yeah, right. And how geography shaped your understanding of things, right? Like, right. We're seventy degrees today, but we're getting snow this weekend. Like, right? Yeah, that's Northern California for you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, but it'll let, people think it's cold. The other thing is, you don't have polar bears everywhere, right? We don't. Yes, and and oh, the poor polar bears. But yeah, no, the definitely the the northernmost parts of Alaska, <laughs> but not not usually now. I will say they they are coming down lower and lower because they're running out of food sources and safe places to live. But that's that's a whole different podcast for a whole different day. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I I'm all about you know breaking up some myths. So you're not going to run into a polar bear and you're not going to freeze. I took my heavy my heaviest coat when I went the one that I used in New York winters. I didn't need it up there. It was still in October. It was still warm enough to like yeah. a regular actual jacket will work so yes just banning stereotypes yeah yeah exactly we don't Um, ride dock sleds we don't live in igloos (laughs) oh yes there is actually gay community it's yeah yeah. really vibrant lgbtq community here in anchorage and and even in other areas of the state where you wouldn't expect there to be um, vibrant, you know, LGBTQ communities. We see, you know, pride committees popping up in 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 different municipalities. Uh, there's already every summer, you know, for our clinic, we're already going to six or seven different places that have pride to help support that. So yeah, we have a re- really vibrant LGBTQ scene here, which I I absolutely adore about it. And your community is so kind. I also have to say that about uh-huh. my experience with the Alaska community is. People were really kind, and I loved that about it up there. Yeah, I think there's like a mutual aid vibe here. You know, we're all pretty isolated. And I always say it's like the south of the north, which in some ways is good and in some ways is bad. But yeah, I think there's definitely a a genuine sense of community, you know, in our state for sure. Yes, I did love that. Um, What are you currently grateful for? Oh, that's a really wonderful question. Um, I am grateful for my safety and my visibility. I'm I'm grateful that I get to be safely visible in my professional role. Um, I'm grateful for a spouse and a kiddo that are healthy. I am this week really grateful for housing and heat um, because it's negative 10. It was negative 40 in Fairbanks last week. Um, so I said out loud to myself last week, I'm really grateful I have a house with heat. Um, and you know, those are, that's, if I can say that every day, then that's, that's a lot of gratitude. I'm really grateful for the community and friends that, that I've developed for myself. Um, and I'm grateful that I'm always in a space where I'm self-reflecting and doing my work. And that I have access to services to do that. <laughs> yeah. I've actually ended up referring a couple people up there because people are like, there are people who do this in Alaska? Oh, my God. And it's like, yeah, here you go. This is great. Yeah. So if our listeners want to find you, if they want to do a professional training with you, if they want to access your clinic, plug all your sites and socials. 
Awesome. Yeah. You can find us on um, both Facebook and the gram. So just identity Inc or identity health clinic you can go to identityalaska.org and on our website and on our socials, we've got a pretty active event calendar and we partner with a lot of other organizations that are queer focused. And so we'll share their events. Um, we've got our winter youth summit coming up on March 31st. Uh, we're always taking new patients. We very rarely you know, shut down our doors to new patients. We don't restrict our Medicaid or Medicare population. We take VA, we take TRICARE. Um, We are now actually a Title 10 facility, uh, which means we can do all of your family planning, fertility, and STI services on a sliding scale down to zero. We've never taken a patient to collections. We're going to work with you. We've got Pride, of course, Pride events coming up in June. We actually just this past Saturday had our annual winter gala, you know, got dressed up the whole bit. Um, but yeah, our website and our socials, we have a really thriving youth program that's on our community program side. So we have the clinic, but we also have a community programming side. So we run online and in-person youth services. We actually have an elders group that meets a couple times a month. Um, we have a young adult group that meets a couple times a month. So all of that information you can find on our website, identityalaska.org. Listeners will have all of those links and more in the show notes. Check them out. Thank you so much for being on the show, and I'm really happy we could reconnect. I know. It's good to see your face again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.